This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is March 24th, 2022, and this is episode 282. I'm Dr. Boom. On today's show, the federal government just got a lot stronger, as Alberta's looks like it might just be falling apart. We got a lot to get into. First, as always, thank you patrons for supporting the show. If you want to join them, get into our Slack channel, go to patreon.com slash Politicoast. First up, Mikasa Esusaka. The CASA is out, Confidence and Supply Agreement. We finished ours here in BC. It came to an untimely end, and we now have a supply and confidence agreement between the federal liberals and the federal NDP. So what is the point of changing up the, the order of this one? I, I don't know. There, That's like the most obvious difference other than like the specifics of what they're going to agree to. But the other is that this one promises us the guiding principle of no surprises. And if you'll recall, BC was guided by the principles of no good faith and no surprises. So good faith is lost between the liberals and the NDP, at least. I think they just needed to differentiate it more. Maybe supplying the government is more important federally than having confidence in it. And so it's just a nomenclature change for that reason. But it was big news at the start of the week, even though it kind of died pretty quickly, because it didn't seem that exciting maybe i still feel like it dominated the conversation for most of the week i guess the challenge is for the last few years the ndp haven't really been at the point of being like we're going to bring this government down there help us help you make this government work and there were even talks in the fall right after the election had wrapped up that something like this might be cooking and it seems like they weren't able to do it then and now they say with the global instability with Russia and Ukraine and COVID still being a thing, now is the time that we're going to do it. It is interesting because there was uh, questions about where uh, Jagmeet Singh was and whether he was missing in action or not. He's actually been pretty invisible in Ottawa for arguably the last two years, but definitely over the last few months. I will know he had a child. And as someone who had a child three months ago, almost to the day, it could be exhausting. And I can't imagine trying to balance being a federal party leader and a brand new father at the same time. <laughs> so I give him some slack there. I'm sure it is a challenge, but also you have staff to be there writing communication stuff, helping you out, putting stuff out and doing that. Yeah, sure. He's not going to do a cross candidate too, or maybe having a little more to say than popping up. Uh, but a month and a half ago to say, yeah, we'll, we'll bat the emergencies at. And uh, other than that, basically not having much to say until this, probably could have been doing more. It seems like he was doing some things behind the scenes if they managed to come out with this. The story, according to Kivash Najafi on Twitter, is that Trudeau gave Singh a call to congratulate him for the birth of his child. And following that, they started having regular conversations, especially during the occupation of Ottawa, that created a sort of romance type situation 
akin to the Horgan Weaver affair, where they managed to paper over some of their fundamental disagreements in favor of here are the things we both agree on and are both trying to do. And what if that's what it took? It's not conventional politics as we like to think of it, but it's conventional politics in two people talking about issues and getting something done. I guess I'll take it. But let's get into the substance of the deal itself. It's structured as a long document, first in terms of the motivation for it as we spoke to, then how it functions before getting into the priorities. The how it functions is pretty interesting to me, at least, in the same way that the BC deal structured out some general principles. But here we have a lot of more specific principles about how it will be done, including a minimum number of meetings. They have pledged that the leaders, Trudeau and Singh, will meet at least once per quarter. The House leaders will meet regularly. The whips will also meet regularly. And every month there will be a stock take meeting by an oversight group, uh, which includes caucus members and staff from both sides of the deal. The other really interesting thing here is that this will give a lot more resources to the NDP. Right for almost the entire time they've been a party, except for four years when they were the official opposition, they haven't had a lot of formal government resources available to them. You get some additional funding as a caucus if you're official party, which they haven't always been. But in this agreement, it says that the liberals will make sure that government bureaucrats and civil servants are available to brief NDP members and caucus on any of the issues that are coming up, which means that's a lot of logistical help to be taken off the party who doesn't always have a ton of money. Yeah, that's particularly interesting. There's been a lot of talk this past week about how this isn't actually a coalition and the NDP MPs aren't getting cabinet positions and yeah, technically it's not. But this move to basically give them the government's resources definitely blurs the line in a way that I I don't think the nitpickers on Twitter have been been particularly amenable to or, or aware of or have alluded over, I should probably say on that. It feels more coalition-y than it otherwise would without that. Yeah, and there were elements of this in the BC deal, right? Where well, the Greens had just cut- access to legislative staff to do drafting and support that from that a, side. They, I think in BC's case, everyone has access to the drafting staff as a MLA. What was different in the BC case, I believe, is that they dropped the official party status threshold to the point where the Greens would qualify. They kind of had to. (laughs) So that will be interesting to see how it transforms the NDP and if it really shifts the thinking within the staff there within the party in terms of how they approach issues. Because beyond that, they've had the parliamentary budget office to number some things out. And we can get into that in a bit. But the NDP has the chance here to learn a lot and to strengthen as a party. And like you said, I fully understand the difference between a coalition and a confidence and supply agreement. And it definitely is a difference from the function of the party, right? At the end of the day, the liberals get to make the decisions as government, like we saw the BC NDP make the decisions here in BC. But from the outside, in many ways, like the conservatives were quick to paint this as a backroom deal coalition and it's like from the outside, it's a difference without a distinction to the public. Like it matters to those in the party, but for an average voter, 
the NDP are supporting the government, so they may as well be in the government, but they're not. Yeah, it does mean that they'll basically get to wear all the unpopular decisions of the government. They'll, even if it is entirely the liberals' decision, there will always be those "why didn't you stop it?" questions. That's uh, something the Greens here had to deal with. Stuff like was it uh, Site C and LNG and a few of those other things that a lot of the Green Party base was not too happy about. But nevertheless, the the Green Party got aware of some of that stuff. I think the BC Greens were pretty successful in hanging that on the NDP and making them own it. It helped that Weaver would go apoplectic when those issues came up and like randomly threatened to drop the government until someone talked him down from Twitter late at night. And then the Greens, of course, pulled that very strategic, very obviously strategic move of having your leader quit the party several months before, or even a full year before the government ended up falling, not that he was knowing that was the plan. And then electing one of your other caucus members to be your leader, who then shifted the party and he would continue on to throw darts at her from the outside. It got weird in the greens, but that deal still fell apart. And so could this one, because there's no law enforcing this. And even if the government passed a law, they could still break it. So hopefully, and we didn't mention it, this lasts until June 2025, because I don't think either of us are eager for a federal election again. But maybe it'll be sooner. But let's talk about what they're actually going to do with this deal. The two kind of signatures that were teased even before it was released, and it was only teased like 24 hours before, if that, are dental care and pharmacare. And both of those, once you read the actual text, come with a lot of caveats. So the dental care program looks like the one that Don Davies pitched to the Parliamentary Budget Office a couple of years ago, which is a dental care for low-income Canadians defined as people who make less than $90,000 a year or those who make under 70000 will have no copay. It will start, according to this deal, with the under-12s in this year, and then expand to kids under 18, seniors and persons with disabilities in 2023, and the whole program will be rolled out by 2025. The Parliamentary Budget Office, when they were asked to look at this in 2020, said about $6 million, slightly more, would benefit from this program, so it's not insignificant. It would have ongoing costs of $1.5 billion a year and would cost an, an upfront $3 billion to just try to catch up on all of the people's bad teeth. It's interesting in there, it notes that about a third of Canadians don't have dental insurance. So this would plug a pretty big gap. It wouldn't necessarily hit all of them because of the money cutoffs. But I guess the idea is if your household is making $100,000, you can probably just pay to go to the dentist out of pocket or get your own insurance. What's your take on the dental coverage plan? Seems reasonable. It's always weird what gets left out of the supposedly universal system. And it doesn't really make sense that dentistry wouldn't be covered as part of the general healthcare system. At the same time, though, like this doesn't exactly close that because it's now a means-tested thing that you quite literally have two tiers in this particular healthcare program? Yeah, definitely the biggest criticism I've seen on the left is that why isn't this a universal dental coverage program? Why is the NDP supporting this? And there's some, oh, is this the Liberals? Hold? No, this is actually the NDP's pitch. This is the program the NDP put forward. 
So be mad. I don't, yeah, obviously the left is always mad at the NDP more than anyone else. <laughs> but it does seem more convoluted than necessary. It does probably save a lot of money, but in the same yeah, way that- Yeah, 1.5 is low for what I, I would have figured a dental program would be. And that's probably because they've sliced it so that it was not actually that big an expenditure by putting all these means testing things in there. Yeah, and I've seen some studies that a lot of provinces actually do have some coverage for low-income residents, and that will vary widely depending on the province. BC does have some coverage, but I don't know the full details of it. So this program will help. It's not clear how exactly it will roll out so fast, whether it will just be send your receipts to the government and they'll pay you back kind of program, or if they're going to try to work it into provincial Medicare's, which will take a lot more time because it will require agreements. This sounds like something that's going to be done solely from Ottawa, which at least has the benefit of being faster, even though it's so nice going to a doctor and not having a bill at the end. We won't have that luxury. The Yeah, this is ought to be cheap because they, they slice it so quickly. I just did the put back to the envelope here. Yeah, the per capita expenditure for the the feds on this one for all Canadians, basically it's forty bucks per person in Canada. So like it's they they've clearly sliced it so that it's it only focused on such a small segment to keep that cost low. The program that will cost more is a universal national pharmacare program. Now this commitment's more vague as it talks about continuing progress towards you can say continuing progress because the liberals in theory have been working towards pharmacare. They just haven't put any money to it or even mention it in their last platform. But in the past, they have started some of the initial work for a pharmacare program, i.e. getting your drugs for free or for a minimal copay. The specifics in this section, and this is after this, everything gets really vague really fast, and even this isn't that specific, is to pass a Canada Pharmacare Act by the end of next year, and after that, task the National Drug Agency with developing the formulary of essential medicines and develop a bulk purchasing plan by the end of the agreement, i.e. 2025. So we won't have Pharmacare by 2025. We will have a plan to get us Pharmacare after 2025, so hopefully whoever gets re-elected continues it. The PBO was asked by the Health Committee, actually, in 2017, in 2016 to look at pharmacare this is when the liberals were first on it the pbo costed it at 19.3 billion dollars net cost to the federal government basically there would be some copay so there would be some money back to the federal coffers that was compared to the roughly 28 billion dollars that canadians are spending right now or then on pharmaceuticals so net society would be 10 billion dollars ahead but we'd be shifting that cost from your private insurers, and your out-of-pocket expenses to the tax revenue. But you get the benefit of bulk buying medicine. It's vague. It's going to take a while. It's also going to require a lot of deals with provinces to make this one happen. Yeah, and that's what's going to be interesting to watch because I am not sure there are a lot of provinces that are really looking forward to taking on large, new, permanent programs that that are really going to stress their budget the canada health act it it you know, was originally pitched to provinces what i think it was a 50 50 cost split and it has been anything but that for a while and now healthcare takes up half or more of provincial budgets 
So it's just the case where if you're dead for Jason Kenny or even I'm trying to think of it. Who's the liberal out in the Maritime? Or Blaine Higgs? No, he's a he's, he's a jerk. Is he dead? Yeah. The, the, whoever the Newfoundland Premier is, I'm blanking on right now. He's a liberal. Like, if you're them, are, are you necessarily going to be wanted to sign on to this uh, long commitment if you're not sure that the, the money's going to be there always in future years? I'll give credit to Trudeau's government in terms that they have gotten almost everyone on board with the childcare funding, with just coming with that big bag of money. They haven't gotten Doug Ford yet in Ontario, but every other province has some amount of agreement, even Alberta, which is a surprise. When you come with big bags of money, it's hard to say no. The yeah, other- but that, as those stacked, though, that's the other thing. Uh, it's Andrew Furry, that's the uh, Newfoundland Premier. I think the next point in this agreement hints at another possible way to get those provinces on board. And this is one that's framed really vague. It talks about additional ongoing investments in health that will be needed in the immediate future. One of the things that the Premier's Council has been on, or the Federation of Premiers, where, you know, the First Ministers, when they get together and yell at Ottawa, one of the things they're always talking about, like you say, is healthcare and healthcare funding and finding a way to better balance this. And COVID stress the provinces far more than it stressed the federal government in terms of healthcare funding, direct healthcare funding. The federal government obviously took on a lot in terms of the social supports and CERB and things like that. But getting vaccines out, getting those testing centers, that all fell on the provincial governments. And so they're looking for money. And there's no specifics here, but there's a commitment to get some money out the door to the provinces it sounds like so that might help open doors at least yeah though though this is also for instance the question of what the impacts are going to be on the federal budget here because this is starting to add up quite a bit just the farmer care and dental means a 50 percent increase to the canada health transfer which i believe is the largest single line item on the federal budget adding some additional funding to make up for covid shortfalls and whatnot too you're you're looking at a significant increase of going off the pre-pandemic budgets here like 10 to 15 percent maybe well maybe not 15 definitely the range of 10 a 10 percent increase on where funding typically is just to commit to these two things before everything else I'll I'll skip ahead and just mention their one item on the other side of the ledger here is a pledge to, quote, move forward in the near term, more vague weasel words, but on tax changes on financial institutions who have made strong profits during the pandemics. Both, I think the Liberals and NDP had things in their platform about taxing banks and the NDP had recently been talking about the need for an excess profits tax, the idea that those companies... And I think they singled out banks and oil companies in this situation who are profiting during inflationary times beyond a reasonable amount in a socially capitalist society should just pay extra tax for that if they're not reinvesting it. And so it's not clear how much they would be pulling from that. Uh, Imagine it's tens of billions of dollars. So the PBO did an estimate, and it was a one-time $14.5 billion, 
which, okay, that gets you part of PharmaCare for one year. Like it's, it doesn't hurt, but you need more. Yeah, it doesn't hurt, but it it's, uh, definitely leaves a very large funding gap. And the, yeah, this is the, yeah, the Liberal Party's corporate or surtats on financial institutions. That was budgeted at about, yeah, depends on the year, but one to one and a half billion on that. Like, leaves a lot of room unfilled. And that's definitely going to be an issue as we try and, untangle ourselves from the very large amount of spending that went out the door over the past couple of years, which was needed, but also does put limits on what can be done in the future. The agreement also calls for a safe long-term care act to be tabled. There's no specifics about what that will mean. Both the liberals and NDP talked in the election about long-term care standards and across the country, but putting that into reality. And the NDP, I think, talked a lot more about making sure we get a lot more profit out of long-term care, or at least reduce the profit motive there. And the Liberals just talked a bit more vaguely. And here we just see a vague commitment to an act that could be anything. So TBD. The next section is on affordability. And there's just lots on housing in here besides the last bullet, which is on introducing an early learning and childcare act by the end of the year to just make sure we continue funding childcare. Um, you're the you're more of a housing guy, policy guy than I am. What were your thoughts on here? There's a bevy of issues being expanded or continued. And a lot of the stuff was what we talked about during the election that they want to reinforce. Was it the implement the homeowners bill of rights that the liberals put forward and those were all fine proposals, but not the sort of thing that's going to make a fundamental dent in things. The financial incentives to reinforce or rental construction generally good, but they're pegging it at 80% AMR, which is average market rent. That's just with where construction costs are. That's going to be hard if there isn't a big subsidy there. And that's really going to matter in what the details are. If it's just a little bit of cash to for an 80% AMR project, it's decent chance it doesn't pencil out. So I'll have to see. There's things like extending the rapid housing initiative for a year. They're hoping to launch Checking the housing accelerator that. fund. Is, yeah, so there's basically some – the housing accelerator fund – I think that was the one that put in some uh, money to try and get both support projects that were seen as important and try and nudge municipalities in the right direction. I think there was some funding on that too. And I'm going off memory here. I think it was to help cities deal with the cost of additional housing or plant or new planning programs and whatnot. And yeah, that's I'm looking fine, at the but liberals platform and that was their goal invest four billion dollars in it and try to get a hundred thousand new homes by 2025 yeah the the thing is there is just a lot of money out there in the ability to construct housing and we have a pretty massive shortfall and just the economic returns alone uh, just to the general society 
drastically outstrip that and the part that municipalities will collect just under the current systems and fees, CAC, uh, those community many contributions, and future property tax revenue are going to massively outstrip that $4 billion. Municipalities are already just leaving a huge amount of money on the table by having a whole bunch of anti-development policies on the books. That's not the thing that's going to help unlock this because they're not acting as purely economically driven rational self-actors on this. They also want to top up the Canada housing benefit in 2022 by $500 and renew it if the cost of living challenges remain. I was trying to figure out what this is, and it seems like there are specific deals with some provinces like Ontario, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick all have these. BC actually has it as well. It provides assistance to marginalized groups with low incomes to help monthly rent payments. So it's a targeted program. I think it was intended to be short-term overall, and a top-up to it seems reasonable. It's you know not a society-wide changing program like we need to solve the crisis, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> That's the thing with a lot of this. None of this, I think, is particularly bad. It's just was it enough? I think is the question I know a lot of people who are NDP supporters or on the left are trying to ask, was this a good enough deal? And some say, yeah, it's good. There's good stuff that'll move forward and it's better than not having it. And others are disappointed and I don't actually know where I fall. I think it probably represents the most we were going to get out of the NDP as it stood right now with the platform they ran on and what the liberals had. Like how the BC NDP green deal was like the BC NDP's platform with a couple trinkets for the greens. This is the federal liberal stuff with like dental care added. Yeah. And maybe a bit stronger a sign that they're actually going to follow through on it rather than just having it in the platform. I think that was the Beaverton approach to this. NDP agrees to get something done and the liberals also agree to get something done. How many years has the National Farmer Care been a, a Liberal Party policy? I think it's been on their book since longer than I've been alive. Childcare has definitely been there as well. Yeah, it was definitely there in 05 when the Liberal government fell after putting forward a childcare plan. The next section is on climate and jobs, and one would hope that being the parties that, being two of the parties that support strong action on climate change or like to talk about it, that this would be a very substantive section. Uh, instead, we're going to advance measures to see, quote, significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 compared to 2005. So we don't have a target, just do more. And we will hit well, we net know it's zero. less than 2005. Yes. <laughs> and net zero, no later than 2050. There's going to be just transition legislation. They're going to move forward in this year on the creation of the Clean Jobs Training Center that'll support retraining options. There's going to be efforts actually to phase out financing for the fossil fuel sector, including from crown corporations. I don't know what that means about the government owning a pipeline, including moves this year. The NDP has definitely been on the government shouldn't be subsidizing the fossil fuel sector for quite a while. And if we're going to move off fossil fuel intensive 
industries, that seems like a reasonable step. As long as you have the supports in there, like the Clean Jobs Training Center and a Just Transition Act, whatever that entails, to give people somewhere to land. And finally, in this section, we will move forward this year on home energy efficient programs. And there's an emphasis in here on Canadian jobs and creating Canadian supply chains. It's not full out economic nationalism, but it's a there's an emphasis there on it. That's one of those ones where it's going to really depend what the supply chains in question are. If it's a strategic industry where there is you know, important strategic implications to that, yes, I think we figured out a couple of years back was that PPE probably should have been included within that purview. And I don't think many people were considering that before 2020. And yeah, stuff like that made sense. It's whether or not it goes into just broader protectionism, I think it's going to be the open question on that. And that could have a pretty significant uh, impact on whether this is a kind of prudent approach to take, even if it's not maximally economic efficient, to something that is could cause more harm than good if taken to an extreme. So we'll have to wait on the details on that. I can see this being an easy emphasis on expanding the number of EVs built in Canada. Maybe we'll open up some heat pump manufacturing facilities. I have no actual clue where heat pumps are manufactured. I know a lot of the companies are based in the States, but I guess I should go outside and look at where the Made in X sticker is on mine one of these days. We do need the jobs, so there can be better and worse ways to do this. But speaking of jobs, there's also a better deal for workers in here. There's only two real notes in here. One is to ensure 10 paid sick days for federal regulated workers starts as soon as possible. This is the law that is already passed and the NDP got the government to commit to enacting the law soon. I didn't realize it hadn't been enacted and that they'd reserved the ability to do that. And they're also going to ban scabs from lockouts and strikes by the end of next year, which is something the labor sector has been really pushing for. The reconciliation section's pretty vague, increased investments in Indigenous housing, and a couple bullets on moving forward on missing murder Indigenous women and girls, and supporting schools uh, and supporting nations that want to search former residential schools for burial sites. But again, they didn't even get like ending all clean water advisories. We already mentioned the tax change for financial institutions. They also want to implement a beneficial ownership registry by 2023. That's something BC has done. And it would be great, I think, if the federal government is at least in line with that, although I don't think it'll make a significant change in finances. And there's a democracy section. The thing that NDP did not get that I think they've talked about being a red line in the past, although I couldn't tell if they did it in 2020, in 2021, was electoral reform. And probably because the liberals said no immediately to that. And so instead, we are going to get three days of voting on election days. People will be able to vote at any polling place within their electoral district, just like you can for municipal elections here in BC. There'll be better mail-in ballot processes, and Quebec will not lose its number of seats. Gotta pander to Quebec in this. That's like the minimum. That's the you can 
do that by just expanding the house. We we should we expand the house rather than trying to keep things this the house is already too disproportionate. We should try and make it any more. So like I said, overall there's good stuff in here. I like the general direction. There's a lot of room for vagueness. This isn't backdoor socialism, like the conservatives said. Uh, it's not a power grab. This is how our system works. Lots of people have said this very clearly. Yeah, the, the worst part of the discourse this past week was people not understanding that this is just how the system works and not some weird unconstitutional aberration. And of course, Yves-Francois Blanchette and the Bloc Québécois are worried that this means the federal government will further trample on provincial jurisdiction because they're the Which, Bloc. Yeah, but like there, there's quite a few things in here that are first and foremost a uh, provincial jurisdiction that the feds are wanting to spend money on and have a saying. So, not completely out of the question. I, I don't know. The, the, the big question for me on all of this is where the is what the financial implications on it are. Um, we're coming out of a $350 billion deficit that was appropriate for the time, but it's not something we can sustain year after year. And we don't have funding numbers, or we don't have expense numbers outside of some of the stuff that was done on the dental care and pharma care on this. But this is looking like a fairly sizable increase in spending relative to the 2019 budget, which is probably the last kind of normal benchmark you can go off of on there. And that was a $338 billion budget. And ballpark here, we're probably looking at at least $30 billion, if not more, that the federal government also indicated a desire to move closer to the NATO 2% target, and that's going to be an additional, I think, $15 billion or so. 15, yeah, it's about 10 to $15 billion, I think, is what that works out to. Oh, I should have had the number in front of me. So, so that starts to actually end up being some pretty real money that, that gets added to this, and we're... We can run a deficit for a while, but eventually the, the bill does come due on it, and we can't indefinitely spend on that and i think the as the recent return of inflation's reminded us and it's not directly attributable to the federal spending despite what uh pierre polyev would have you think but nevertheless i think there's been a attitude that's generally taken hold in the past five ten year definitely five years that there's that the fundamental budget constraints are less of a constraint than they actually are and i think we're starting to get reminded with raising interest rates inflation coming back that economic factors are, are more of a constraint than some people had thought they were going to be going forward and it's going to be interesting to see how this goes because potentially this is an unsustainable spending path if everything in here is done the way it is plus the the other stuff they the government's hinted at plus the maybe a desire not to scale back some of the pandemic spending all that quickly it, it starts to be a real you know sizable chunk of gdp every year deficit at that point and that can't go on for too long yeah i'm actually surprised the ndp didn't manage to extract more revenue streams in here more taxes frankly like the ndp's talked up a wealth tax in recent years and the pbo cost assumed 
or estimated that could bring five to six billion dollars in a year. Like again, none of these pay for it all, but you take five billion here, you take another 10 billion there, you start covering the 20, 30 billion you need. And there is still that strong argument that we are still in the era of affordable deficits. If our economy is growing, we don't need a balanced budget. And I know you don't argue that. The goal is just not to have $300 billion deficits. So yeah, a $5 billion deficit is a rounding error. A $300 billion deficit is a don't run this for more than a year or two or, or things get bad. Yeah. And I think some that. of those biggest expenses were those very short term programs yeah, the, like CERB and the wage subsidies and I things think the that net, are phasing out. I think the net year's deficit was projected at about $120 billion, which is you know, more reasonable, but stack on another 30 to 50 billion. And that's getting up there, Dan. We should have a budget soon, sometime in the next month, everyone's expecting. And I think this deal is what was holding it up. So that's the next big thing I'm going to be looking for federally, because that will tell us how much of this is moving, how fast. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only other thing I'll add is that the Nordic countries and a lot of the more social democracy type place in Europe, they generally pay for their fairly expansive social spending with a pretty broad-based tax on pretty much everyone, high-value-added taxes and the like. And that's generally the way it actually works out in practice. And I get the politics of not front-loading that. If we are moving towards more of that structure in terms of our, our federal programs, that is most likely the way that the tax system is going to evolve and you, know, you can debate the wisdom of having say a, a 10% GST rather than 5% but you know th that would match more where uh, where the comparative countries in Europe would be on that sort of thing. I think some places like Sweden are as high as 20% or high teens on that. Um, so yeah, it, it's something that's, I think, going to be more of a political constraint on this stuff actually going forward on that. Just like I said, we can't run de deficits, large deficits indefinitely. So it, it's going to be a political challenge. I, I don't actually see that addressed in here anywhere. No, I haven't finished my taxes yet, but I'm probably looking at our house getting like a $3,000 refund. So I think you could tax me a little more. I'm just saying, government. Well, from stability to chaos, let's check in briefly on my home province of Alberta. Their week has just been one to remember, and it's going to continue for at least a couple more months now. They had a confidence vote today on their budget that turned out to be not that particularly controversial. Most of the NDP caucus didn't show up despite saying they were going to force a confidence vote on it. They only had nine MLAs churn up. The UCP had about 40. So it was an, a very easy budget vote. But the question was, will all of Jason Kenney's rebels still support him? And it turned out it didn't matter. Let's back up. Jason Kenney's the premier of Alberta, the United Conservative Party. He's been under siege from... Also... Base, yeah, basically everyone throughout all of COVID... I think you and I would probably say they haven't done enough or have treated it far too laissez-faire. And then there's a big swath of his base, at least, who thinks 
anything he did was far too much and totalitarianism, and he's as bad as Trudeau somehow. And that's what he's caught between. So I don't envy him. This has all led up to a leadership review that the party conceded to do following a revolt by local constituency associations who'd put forward petitions to the party to say, we we want Kenny out, we want to have this review. And they said, all right, we'll do a review on April 9th. It'll be in person in Red Deer, which was always going to be weird because it's the middle of Alberta. And so you had to have people drive to a conference center to vote. They said you had to sign up by March 19th, you had to pay $100 in advance to register, and then you were going to get there. And so that all seemed to be in Jason Kenney's favor because that was a lot of high bars seemingly to prevent people from voting in this. And then 15,000 Albertans signed up for UCP memberships and for this leadership review, and the party lost it because they had no clue how you handle 15,000 people showing up in a medium-sized town. I think Red Deer is about 100,000 people. Like, you're swelling the city by 15% for a single vote (laughs) at a single polling place. Yeah, a lot of people either really hate Jason Kenney or really love Jason Kenney. I'm going to guess more the former, but yeah, Yeah, those are just insane numbers for uh, a leadership vote. Yeah, an in-person one. Uh, A leadership review vote, not even just a who gets to Mm -hmm. be the next leader one. So earlier this week, it was teased that they were considering changing the rules last minute. And then just yesterday, they officially announced from the party that the rules are changed, they're going to do mail-in ballots rather than in-person. They're going to offer everyone who registered a refund, although you could also just get a tax receipt and consider your $100 a donation. I'm really curious to see what happens there because this is the party raising like a million and a half dollars, which they might now have to refund to most of them. And the party has not been doing as well as the NDP and at fundraising recently. Everyone who's a member as of March 19th is able to vote by mail, and you have to get your ballots in by May 11th. That means the results won't be known on April 9th, obviously, but they will be known on or around May 18th. So that extends the deadline. Jason Kenney has said he will continue leading if he gets what the rules allow him to get, which is 50% plus one. Traditionally, party leaders usually look for a little bit more than 50% support from their membership. I think the famous adage is like 75%. That was what, I think that's roughly what Joe Clark got and considered it insufficient to stay on. That's been the rule of thumb uh, that you need, I, I would say definitely north of 80 yeah, both Allison Redford and Ed Stelmack got about 77, 78%. And neither of them lasted very long after their reviews yeah, returned you, those super majorities. You show, yeah, really, realistically, to stay honest, leader, you need to show a decisive command of support from within the party. And it, it cannot be the barest of majorities, despite that technically being the rule for pretty much all parties. But it's not feasible when 49.9% of your party is actively against you. So these review changes happened. Like 33 riding presidents publicly opposed the change. 
there was a number of them that were at the legislature today protesting, including members of the legislative assembly, like members of the UCP caucus were there, which is pretty hard open revolt. All of this comes after Brian Jean just won a by-election in Fort McMurray with 67% of the vote. And his whole UCP platform was, I'm going to take the party back and get Jason Kenney out of his job, which is a way to run your party candidacy. The fact that Kenny signed those nomination papers is just a, a completely baffling decision on his part. I guess he didn't want to look afraid. He wanted to embrace his enemies. So all of that is what we've gotten to. And then there's two major stories CBC dropped this week. More bad stuff that's happened for Kenny. The first that I'll allude to is a story by Carolyn Dunn posted on yesterday on March 23rd. This is around ongoing allegations that date back to how Kenny won his leadership. There's still RCMP investigations happening to this. Several candidates and members were charged under the election commissioners. They filed for judicial review. And what CBC uncovered in reviewing the court documents for this judicial review is a bunch of super juicy allegations. So one of the things that happened when Jason Kenney ran for the leadership or is alleged to have happened was that another candidate, Jeff Calloway, started a campaign as a quote, kamikaze candidate. His goal was to just go after Brian Jean and try to take him down and get his hands dirty and then drop out. And that's fine, you're allowed to do that. But what it turns out is that Kenny was allegedly in the room when they were discussing this strategy with Callaway. They were talking about how Kenny's campaign would transfer funds to Callaway's. That's not allowed. And there's apparently a photo of him giving a gift of Alberta premium dark horse whiskey to Callaway after he drops out just going, thank you for your service. So that's all sleazy as hell. And then it comes out today that CBC... And this is from journalist Elise Von Schiel. She gets a recording of a caucus and staff meeting that Kenny had on Tuesday where he was just ranting and raving. So this was clearly recorded by either a core member of the UCP staff or someone in his party, one of his caucus members, who just decided, I'm going to record this and I'm going to leak it to the media almost immediately. Both of which are wild. What's even better are all the quotes that are in this article. And there are a lot of them and they're all juicy as hell. Kenny apparently had said things like, what's the easiest path for me just to take a walk? I don't need this job. I could go to the private sector, have my evenings and weekends off. I honestly thought about it a lot before Christmas, but I decided that would be grossly irresponsible because if we were to have a leadership election in this context, it would, I think, permanently divide us and hand the NDP the next election. I don't say this stuff publicly. These are just kooky people generally, he told, talking about some of the people trying to unseat him. Preston Manning used to say that a bright light attracts a few bugs. There's more than a few bugs attracted to us, this party right now. Talking about the leadership approach and what you were talking about, how many people usually show up. At a normal convention, he says, 1,300 hungover PCers would wake up at a convention hotel on Saturday morning. They'd grab coffee and they'd stumble in to cast a ballot from the readership review. 
And 15 or 20% or so, the people that didn't get the appointment, didn't get the funding, or the premier didn't send flowers on their birthday or whatever, they would come and vote against the leader. And then everything was fine. And if that was what I was dealing with, no problems, no problem. No normal internal politics, I can handle. I can handle that. There's nothing normal about this. I will not let this mainstream conservative party become an agent for extreme, hateful, intolerant, bigoted, and crazy views. Sorry to be so blunt with you, but you need to understand what the stakes are here. The lunatics are trying to take over the asylum, and I'm not going to let them. Man, this is just... Can you imagine being a meeting where that's what your boss is saying? Yeah, this actually reminds me of the uh, Hail Mary attempt that O'Toole made to try and stave off the revolt that ended up ousting him. The, lang- the, yeah. the language is dialed up a, a couple more notches, but the, the general sentiment is the same. And if this was a full caucus meeting, there are people who are publicly revolting in that meeting. So maybe he didn't think a leak was likely. Now, the press secretary for Jason Kenney was asked about this for comment, and they simply sent back CBC this single sentence. The comments made by the premier to staff are consistent with previous public statements on this matter. When was Kenya on record saying that? His caucus is cra- or his supporters are crazy? <laughs> like a decent judge the UPC bases? Like, it's just a popcorn show right now because I don't live there. People are trying to pan out what the likely scenarios are. We're now past the main confidence vote where the scenarios, the extreme scenarios where Kenny would have tried to force a quick election by losing his own bite or engineering his own loss are passed. There's still a theory that if he barely holds on, he will trigger a quick snap election later this spring or early summer just to try to get his team on side because it'll be them or the NDP. And that I could still see backfiring. That um, sounds like he, a good way to get what's the what's the Mavericks or Buffalo or I can't keep track of all these like small little parties that are popping off in the prairies, but it sounds like a good way to send a flood of people in their direction to call a snap election after you know, squeaking by with a 52% on a, a leadership review after yeah, messing I, around with the rules. I think the Wild Rose Independence Party of Alberta is the main source for where the disaffected ones are sitting. There's also the Alberta Advantage Party, the Independence Party of Alberta there's apparently a reform party of Alberta still and a pro-life party. I don't think those two are as prominent. Those are That's your right-wing splinter groups of Alberta. I'm just looking at who's registered on uh, Wikipedia's list up to date. On the center, you have the Alberta party and the Liberal party who supposedly still both exist. There is a Green party finally. They were deregistered for a while. Then they were the Evergreen party. And then that guy went a little nuts. And... Probably sounds like it has better branding than the Green Party would in Alberta. And then there is a Communist Party of Alberta. But that's I, not going to do yeah. anything. The The Green Party of Alberta sounds like it, it would have roughly the success of as the Anglophone Party would in Quebec. Their record between the two parties is half a percent, having run 28 MLAs, or having run 28 candidates for 87 seats. Half a percent sounds about right. Yeah. So keep your eye on Alberta politics. The Dave Berta podcast, the strategists are fun for that. Yeah, I'll check in a couple months. But. It's a mess. It's amusing to watch from a distance because there is just so much drama here. 
Let's move on to quick takes and let's check in quickly on the federal conservative leadership race. We have more candidates. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, BC MP Mark Dalton joined the race. He's from Mission Maple Ridge, I believe, as well as notable floor crosser Leona Alessev, who switched parties back in, I believe, 2019 it was, from the federal liberals. It hasn't formally announced yet, but there's a campaign website up, so secrets out of the bait there. Dalton's the lone indigenous member of the Conservative Caucus. As far as I know, he is Métis or has Métis ancestry. His It's Pitt Meadows platform, Maple Ridge, by the way. There we go. His platform Mission is Ridge on... Mission Maple Ridge was the old one. His platform's on a mix of like cultural conservative, like cancel culture, anti-cancel culture stuff, uh, grassroots guarantee, launching a COVID inquiry, although he released a statement recently that was mostly focused on the curtailment of civil liberties, but he also wants to win the suburbs. I mean, he's not wrong they have to win the suburbs. Technically, not- he, he represents a suburban riding. And Aleslev, like you said, was formerly with the Liberal Party. She had crossed the floor to the Conservatives, citing their fiscal policy and foreign policy as things she could not stand with. So it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, she brings forward. But we do have some plans from Patrick Brown as he announced his plan for Western Canada and did so with the announcement that Michelle Rumpel-Garner, prominent Calgary MP, is his co-chair, his national campaign co-chair. Yeah, Jen Rumpel-Garner is a a fairly big get since she is a rather prominent MP and it's a, a viability signal for Brown. Yeah, I think anyone counting them out, I think, was probably doing that a, a little prematurely there. And it uh, is an indication that there's perhaps more legs under his campaign than a lot of people even gave it credit for at the start. He's still a long shot, but this is an interesting platform. He wants to ensure there's representation by population. I assume that would have to mean adding a lot more MPs. He's like, unlike Pierre Polyev, I wouldn't have voted with Trudeau to water down representation for the West. He would support appointing elected Alberta senators, which I believe violates the Senate reference question that Harper put through. I think it might be okay if they just coincidentally appoint the people. It's been a while since I've looked at the Senate reference. He would fix equalization. No one ever knows what that means because, you know, the last person to redo equalization was Jason Kenney. He would not do a just transition because we got to keep the oil industry. Basically, this is just a lot of stuff focused on Alberta and the energy sector. Yeah. Um, I, he would I think issue an apology for the National Energy Program. <laughs> that's actually probably do some politics in the West. Uh, the the interesting thing here that I put, I either will go through all like ten or twelve points on that. Number twelve is win. Period. Not wrong. It's, <laughs> it's something they do need to do. Those are these stuff about like, insurance free trade within Canada. The most interesting thing I think was the point about spreading out all the work from home or remote work jobs to make sure the federal remote work can be do- get spread more equally across the country, which seems good out there and, and not something that i think has gotten a lot of attention elsewhere i know people who work in the federal public service who are pretty much like forcing their managers to let them work from home because 
there's no reason they should have to go in. And there are just middle managers in the bureaucracy are like, no, I need to see you in the office. And they're like, why? And I, I think it not does everyone has that confidence. And but thank you, Mayor Brown, for standing up for the work from home crowd. Yeah, there, there were definitely some challenges when the, the federal government pivoted to work from home. The dealing with personal information was definitely a, a challenge on that and took a lot of work to to get those systems in a way that could actually be done in a way that maintained the privacy requirements and information keeping requirements. So it, it's it's not necessarily a small lift to, to do that, but I, I think we've figured out the biggest challenges with it at this point. But I also understand why, say, if you're you know a Service Canada person who has to, who your subordinates are dealing with people's you know, personal information every day, why you prefer them to be doing that in the controlled office environment rather than at home. Sure, but your average report writer can probably go home. Yeah. Or work from Alberta. Or BC is part of the West, Patrick. But I'm curious to see what the other conservative candidates release as this race continues. And finally, a lighthearted story to wrap this up with. Uh, CBC reporter Justin McElroy came across a rather amusing bit of or BC politics history as it turns out uh, slightly eccentric former Premier Bill Vanderzam has or made a vanity Christmas movie back during his time as Premier t entitled Sinterklaas Fantasy where he plays the main character and flies to the Netherlands on a magic tulip Super epic failpedia wiki tells us this was meant to have scenes depicting the liberation of Amsterdam by Canadian soldiers in 1944 and a visit to the Queen's Palace. No one's found this film yet, but friend of the podcast, Stephen Tweedale, I just noticed on Twitter, shared a picture of a book that is real. It's a, re a little red book that is entitled Quotations from Chairman Zalm, Memorial Edition, enlarged and updated. And in there, he has quotes on accepting the role in Sinterklaas fantasy are things like, you should learn as many trades as you possibly can, so you've always got something to fall back on. I guess he was hoping to become an actor if he, if being a premier didn't work out. Well, being a premier didn't work out for Van Der Zam, but he's not an actor now. He also said, I'm simply following what Ronald Reagan did. I, I think the, the sequence was a bit different on that case. And in terms of the success of it, he said, I think it will be a great hit in British Columbia and it will probably outdo everything else that shows in Vancouver. <laughs> I, that hey, unfortunately we, didn't happen. I, I desperately want to see this film now because it sounds hilarious in the way that the room is. And yeah, this would just be incredibly amusing to watch and us to uh, I don't know, do, do a special pod just riffing on. Yeah, we'll do a live React episode if anyone can find it. Just email us, podcast at politicos.ca. And that has been Politicoast. Find links to everything we talked about at politicoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politicoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY, 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.